0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: Hi and welcome to Radio Therapy. and what better way to celebrate a Sunday morning than eavesdropping on a bunch of health professionals talking about work, I say professionals with a bit of a smirk on my face. First up, we'll be speaking with, now he's a professional, we'll be speaking with Dr Nick Carr about fatherhood. Now Nick has cancelled hundreds of new dads, he is a dad to three kids, and he's even written a book about the topic, i.e. he's a bit of an expert. Regular listeners will understand that Nick really knows and lives his topics. And this one is no different. He and the team will be comparing notes about, a, about how to bring up our kids. Should we encourage them to go to uni or take a gap year? Use disposable or cloth nappies? How many vegetables can they have on their no-eat list? Sip a cup or dummy? So many decisions over so many years. Nick will ease me, uh, well, us really, through all, them all. EpiPen is a Jill of all trades in the health industry. From nurse to researcher to manager, she just loves hospitals. She can't leave them. And today she's going to get personal and talk about her own experiences living with asthma epi um attempted to self-manage her asthma by marrying a doctor but when he turned out to be a pathologist she had to rethink her management plan what was it like as a kid as a teenager as a party girl when i knew her then as a mum with asthma epi will be telling us all oh, she's smiling at me Now when I think of lawyers, I think Cleaver Green, afternoon naps on the Chesterfield and a furrowed brow over whether to choose the Norwegian pine interior or the sports cabin in the new European vehicle. Our very own lawyer, Lex Judicata, is nothing like that. He lets his PA decide on which car to buy this week. Lex, the chief solicitor for a large metropolitan hospital next to a park. Do <laughs> 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 you identify it? No, please. <laughs> we'll be chatting with us about new mandatory reporting laws. All this and so much more on a medical show that is not endorsed by any reputable institution. That's because most of those institutions are closed on Sunday mornings. Stay with us for the next hour until I and Gogo Good morning, Lex to Carter. It's been a while since you've been on the show.
2: Uh, yes, I've, uh, taken the yacht around the precars. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you've gotta, you've gotta use them. You know, you've got these toys, you've gotta use them. So I did that and, um I was able to do some billable work on the yacht while I was, you know, with the internet and so I'm at a killing really. I'm on the yacht and Creaming it in,
1: but uh, you don't even need the internet to, for a billable hour because thinking about a case in the shower, you can bill for it. That's country.
2: true. That's true. And uh, if I don't charge while I'm bending down to pick up the soap, I think that's I think that's unreasonable. Oh, you've got why. your limits. I got the limits. Yeah, standards they call. Good morning, Epi. Good to have you in Morning.
1: Uh, I hope I didn't embarrass you too much by I that sort of chronology. I my
0: puffer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was talking about Party Girl. <laughs> oh, yeah, indeed.
1: <laughs> That's what we met years and years ago. And good morning, uh, Dr Nick. Oh, it's very good to see you again. Nice to see you too. Now, we were just talking in the uh, green room that uh, about kids,
3: and you were telling me how it's VCE slash IB time in your household. Yeah, old. My, my particular interest is in first-time mm. fathers, but I'm rather past that now, because my, my youngest <laughs> turned 18 <laughs> yesterday, and uh, we're in the midst of that final year 12 stuff with exams and that sort of thing. So.
2: I thought oh, so you are still in the midst of the uh, 18th birthday party.
3: No no, 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 no. It was all very, very quiet stuff, so very sotto voce, because she mm. said, no, no alcohol, even though I turned 18, oh. taking her exams very seriously, just like a dad.
1: Mm. <laughs> Sotto voce. <laughs> <laughs> what
2: does that mean? Like staccato, you're you're the Italian. It's, it's a musical term. It means. It means, you've got a sore throat, doesn't it? <laughs> i <It means laughs> that. quietly.
1: Hey, Epi, um, you brought in an article about Australian sex lives, and I said, whatever you do, don't talk about that on air, because we're kind of above the waist here. <laughs>
0: oh, really? That's <laughs> the first one. <laughs> yes, in um, Saturday's paper, that's yesterday, oh. it says sex lives colour a wider mm-hmm. spectrum. So it is discussing the study of 20,000 Australians who participated in a study funded by the Australian Study of Health and Reproduction. Oh, yeah. So it's very interesting, and I think one of the things is that's appealed to me oh. was that um, young people were interviewed, so they were aged between sixteen and sixty-nine. And people in their sixties, <laughs> people in their sixties, are still having a great sex life. No way, Will absolutely. Be... I didn't oh, think our parents shut did up. it. <laughs> It's a pretty, it's a it's a pretty unfortunate yeah.
2: photograph, though, isn't it, on the yes. front page of a daily paper?
0: And yes, and it says. What do you think of
2: the photograph? I, I can't see the photograph. but
0: part. it says we're more experimental, but it's the uh, odd missionary position. <laughs> <laughs> Is
2: it? No, I don't think. No, there was one actually on the front page, which I think was only surpassed oh. by the Jeffrey the Edelston proposal at the Melbourne yes, Cup. Yes, I, but it was pretty. Um, I yeah. thought a bit tasteless. Um,
0: I agree with mm. him in bed with yeah yeah with the sheets pulled up.
2: He, he, he looked a lot more comfortable than she did. I thought yes. sideshow,
1: ready a, for action, med- medical <laughs> show, 60. medical show. So, yeah. what does these statistics show about well, our sex it life? it
0: says uh, sadly that sadly. we've gone down in the number I of times that can we've. He, he oh, oh. Sorry, sorry, we've, <laughs> we've the reduced the number of times that we have been having sex from one point four times a week. Uh, yet yeah, no, one point eight. To 1.4 times
2: a week. But how many emails can you send in bed now compared to 10 years ago? Well,
0: many more because we have our phones beside our oh. beds how, now. How mm-hmm. do you have
1: sex 1.4 times a week? Well, it's <clears> just, just you base, start having sex or? and
0: then you bail. <laughs> <laughs>
1: ah, I'd rather read a
0: book f- Your mind has gone
3: off <laughs> it is, It's interesting research though isn't it I actually had a phone call from one of these researchers um, oh. Quite a long time ago But someone completely unannounced And you don't know if they're going to try and tell you That there's a virus on your computer Or they mm-hmm. can try and sell you some solar panels But no this person said I'm from a reputable <laughs> research company And I want to ask you about your sex life Goodness! And so all of a sudden you've got a complete stranger and female stranger talking to me bloke, Asking me the most intimate details.
0: So you went, you did it? I
3: did. I thought, well, I will answer these questions. And then halfway through, I thought, oh, my God, this is a mistake. How did you know that they were who they said they were? Well, that's a very good question. And that's why they've, they've interviewed 20,000 people. Mm. Um, I, I'm all for research. I've been a researcher. Sure, sure, so I'm sure. pro-research. I was happy to try and help. But it fascinates me. How do you get reliable data when people are so used to cold calls that are misleading or, frankly, fraudulent? Mm. 20,000 people have answered you probably, these questions. You'd
2: be more likely to open up on the phone, though, wouldn't you, yes. face-to-face? It's easy. It's, it's like it's like email. It's less uh Confrontational. Intrusive. Yeah, less confrontational. But
1: Lex, if you got a phone call from somebody saying, Hi, I'm doing sex research. Can I ask you some questions? Oh, you'd what? assume it was
2: a uh, junk call. You'd hang <laughs> up, wouldn't you?
1: Assume it was me putting on a voice, wouldn't you?
2: I'd be honoured, actually. <laughs> so the I'm main... pretty peeved I didn't get the call. What do the... you got to do to get one of these calls? You'd have to be oh, under 69. <laughs>
0: <laughs> What's wrong with me? What's wrong with my sexual performance that I don't get a call? There was a sad little point, though, that oh. it says that Australians look at pornography much more than they did a decade ago.
1: Oh, that would have to be because the internet the is internet, available. Absolutely. It's
0: available and easy to...
1: And did they postulate as to why um, people
3: are having 4, <laughs> sex, sec, 0.4 less sex per week? No. Well, I think they talked yeah. about the, the rise of intrusion in the bedroom, the, the phones, the oh, internet, the screens. Internet, oh, the uh, screens. I think the, the feeling is that people are so wired, they're so connected. People aren't turning off. They're not lighting the massage candles and turning the lights down <laughs> low and kicking the TV off Yeah, they're, they're going to bed with their iPads, pods and all the rest of it.
2: Yeah, that's true. And that's, that, you can't turn off. That's the problem. So you can turn on, you can't turn oh, off. You've oh, got to turn nice. the work off. And it's... you. Know, you it's, I mean, phones used to be intrusive, but now you get a ding on the email at any time. Mean, I got one this morning, 4am, from South East Water. I thought, kind of, what's this? You know, because I've got family overseas, I thought I'd better have a look at this. 4am, woke me up. Just and and did it interrupt the point four. <laughs> Four i I'll dare and admit it with the family away, but um, <laughs> it's but it was South East Water telling me my bill was ready. Like, <laughs> seriously, <laughs>
1: seriously,
0: oh what an intrusion! I, yeah. So this is
1: an interesting phenomenon. I hadn't considered this because uh, with kids, you can uh, I think about this a lot. You know, n- no screens in the bedroom type of things so that they have a kind of like a quarantined oasis where they can just let their minds roam free and be bored and then creative. But in the bedroom, I mean, that's significant to go from 1.8 to 1.4 times per week. That's 40%, so it 's about 20% difference, or thereabouts. Um uh, for something that's fairly, a fairly important part of somebody's life mm. and we think it's due to screens. So maybe we should have a thing where you, know, where you go, you know in those um, Texas bars as you go into them, yeah. you leave your guns outside. Mm. Maybe we
3: should have the same thing with the bedroom. You leave your, your screens outside the bedroom.
2: And turn them off completely.
0: Yes.
3: And if you want to get all medical about it, the other thing about the screens in the bedroom is they emit very blue light, which suppresses your melatonin at the very time you want your melatonin to be rising and that's so it makes right. you sleep less well that which should give you more opportunity for that extra fall, but apparently it doesn't mm.
1: mm-hmm. so that would be a good intervention if you dumped your, your screens at the bedroom door do you have more sex that's a nhmrc funded fundable study i reckon mm. speaking of screens and 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 HMRC, National Health and Medical Research Council. There is a really interesting study in their latest internal medicine journal, See, so I'm getting all scientific on you guys, about the use of iPads uh, by doctors on ward rounds in hospitals with patients. <clears throat> and the study was basically about if you give doctors some iPads, will they use them to communicate with patients, as in for patient education, about their illness or show them test results and so forth. It's a really interesting idea.
2: Do they write personal information on the iPad uh, during the round? Uh, well, that's a big problem. Good on really.
1: you, Bill. Yeah, well, yeah, well, No, no, hang on. It was about the... Yes, don't, don't, I'm trying to read the article. <laughs> They're asking me questions. But it was about... No, this is more about, like, showing you your test results yeah. or showing you
2: patient information. Well, like, what, what, what are my test results doing on a doctor's iPad? No, no, but it's, it's basic...
1: It's an iPad which is bolted to a trolley which the doctors wheel around. It's a hospital iPad.
2: Oh, it's a hospital. Connected iPad. to the hospital. A secure medical data system. N-
1: network. Yeah. Right.
2: They can't take it to a party and leave it for they, someone to pick up by mistake.
1: No, well, you could, but it would look pretty sus taking it a trolley. Like they can with their phone cameras. Mm. Correct. So the question was, do, will doctors on a ward round show patients the iPad, as I'm demonstrating to the panel here, back to test results, or here's an anatomical drawing of your heart, and this is the way the blood flows, da 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 And the answer was no. Ooh,
3: no, because no, they were standing there playing Angry Birds. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Pretending no. to educate. No.
1: It's, because, it's because the typical consultation in this study uh, on a ward round lasted how many minutes, do you think? One. Point five four minutes was the average length oh. and the ward and when they interviewed doctors afterwards they said you know why didn't you use it and they just said we're just under the pump time is so limited yeah. on a ward round we've got to get through so many yes. patients and when I do want to do uh, as you know education I talk on a ward round rather than you know show a device because that i find very interactive if i want to use those educational materials i'll do that in my rooms with the patient sitting down i've got more time to explain and go through things which is really interesting Mm. because i would have thought ipad great you can show patients you can interact over it but there's just not enough time according to the
2: study screens and is that because there are too many patients i mean why can't they just extend the duration of the ward round I mean, having a they
0: surgical ward round when they've got to rush off to theatre.
2: Oh, the, the doctors themselves are on their way to theatre while well, they do So the the if you've got you know forty yeah. patients yeah. to see
3: patients. In, a, in a morning, yeah. got to paint.
2: Yeah, it's true. And yet we're still God. not employing surgeons and anaesthetists and emergency physicians. We're still not what? Well, they're emigrating. Our, doc- our young doctors are games? emigrating because they? they can't get jobs. Yeah, emergency physicians and mm. anaesthetists. And, and yet we say that there's not enough time to do a ward round. Well, the answer, obviously, is to employ more staff, employ more doctors. Well,
1: we could get into the whole discussion about should uh, medical care be centralised in a hospital, and obviously we need hospitals, or should we try and decentralise it into the community?
0: Mm.
1: So where do we put the doctors? Well,
2: I'm just talking about ward rounds here. I mean, if
1: <laughs> I know you are. It's more the difficult in the community with ward rounds. No, well, you have consultations, like, mm. you know... Oh. Mm. Hairbrush.
0: Well, hairbrush. I've got... I'm going to wind you up a little bit because, you know, I've got a show to do, right? Okay. <laughs>
1: okay, you're listening to <laughs> Radiotherapy. <laughs> we get see he comes on the show, <laughs> G- Judy Carter.
0: He gets me all I around, know. But... <laughs> I can't wait to hear what he's going to talk about.
1: <laughs> he's going to be talking about... Oh, I know what you're talking about. In fact, I discussed it. mandatory <laughs> yeah.
2: reporting. But oh, oh, after d- my AGEan experiences. Do you don't want to hear about those? <laughs> <laughs> Coming up, we're going to be
1: talking <laughs> with uh, Dr Nick about how I should be bringing up my... Kids. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. We're speaking with Dr. Nick
3: about becoming a dad for yeah. the first time. Yes, one of the. <laughs> I love your intro because it's a sort of Herald Sun expert on everything <laughs> kind of intro. Today, I, I wouldn't actually claim any expertise in the whole of parenting. My particular interest is is first time fathers when dads do it, when they've never done this process before, and how difficult it can be for men when they first become dads. So I'm very interested in parenting generally. Happy to talk about that, but vegetables and kids and that sort. of, oh, I wouldn't claim great expertise. in yeah, that. you can have an opinion, and it's I've <laughs> got an opinion though, <laughs> of course. Well, it's it's, it's gauche if you claim yourself to
1: be an expert, but it's very, very cool if I claim that you're an expert. You say, and I'll accept that, that. that you can accept.
3: So tell us about first-time dads. Just tell us why you got interested in that sort of particular area. Well, it's one of those crazy things that probably began when I was about five years old. Funnily enough, um, and if it's <laughs> yeah. not too early on a Sunday morning for this, I was I was not very well one one day and sitting on the toilet and I'd got myself into a bit of a mess and uh, and I was only. Little four or five, and I needed a parent to come and help. And I called out for my mum, oh, "Come and help! I'm in a bit of a mess." And mum came. And while I was in the middle of that process, I thought, "What would have happened if only Dad was here?" And I thought, "Oh, I wouldn't have called Dad." And I kind of remembered that story from when I was little. And I, even then, i remember empathy. Why, why do I want my mum to help tidy me up, sort this mess out? But it wouldn't have been right for my dad mm-hmm. to come and help. Uh, And I remember that story all the way through my childhood. And as I became a young adult, I remember thinking, I don't want to become the kind of father who isn't the right person for my child to call um, when there's a problem, you know, if it's something a bit intermittent, icky, like a a toilet problem and diarrhoea and so on. So I got very interested in where does the fathering thing begin? How do we get dads involved in a way that means that they are intimately involved mm. in their child's care so that when there's a problem, they're as good a parent as the mum? For the yucky stuff as well as the... Yeah, stuff, yeah the, you yeah. know, why should dads just be there, you know, kicking the ball or, mm. you know, reading the paper in front of the mm. TV? you know I, I got interested in, in what I call the nurturing or the involved father. Mm. what What's that role?
2: Do you think that's changed since you you're a 5 year old in the terms of women now having careers and and being at work more and less in the home and therefore there's more shared, shared parenting going on? I think there's been a total transformation
3: in just a couple of generations. Uh, it's one of the things that I talk about a lot and which I write about is how we expect dads now to do things differently with almost no role modelling no history of doing it um, because I don't know about your parents but certainly you know, my father who was a good dad You know, he was a, he was a psychiatrist as well funny enough but, uh, but you know, a great dad but he wasn't involved in the same way as many younger men these days want to do when they're becoming fathers. And they don't have the role model for how to do that. They don't have the history in society. They don't have the history in psychology. I mean, uh, a lot of the writers um, in psychology uh, really excluded dads from the intimate, caring role. So there's a whole system which previously excluded the dads from this more intimate role, and now we're trying to do it. And we're trying to set it up for
2: the first time. More dads would be home dads. In our, this generation, would they, with, with the, the woman with the career and the man with the home duties well, that we would have like ever the, seen
3: when we were growing up. Yeah, it's still a tiny percentage, though. So Growing? Yeah, I, I, I don't know the figures, but certainly still a very small number. And the dads who do, one of the things that I looked at is... Can dads actually do this? You know, are dads, are men capable of the nurturing the intimate care? Um, without going into the details of the research, yes, they can. Mm-hmm. It's a very important point. Blokes sometimes, oh, you know, it's not kind of my job. I'm not cut out for this. This is kind of maybe women's work idea. Uh, that's simply not true. All the studies show that when it comes to intimate care of children, the nurturing care, dads can do it just as well as the women they don't necessarily know how to <laughs> and they have to learn but once they learn they can do it i like what you said before nick that there hasn't been a lot of role modeling
1: for dads uh, to how to nurture their newborns so how do you go about addressing
3: that kind of thing and and One of the things I think is very important is dads need to know this shift. They need to understand that if they're feeling a bit left out, if they're struggling a bit with it, they're not alone. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's one of these things where they're being expected to do something that's new and they need to understand, yeah, you know, if you're feeling a bit dislocated, if you're a bit unsure, you don't know quite what's going on, that's normal. Mm -hmm. That's entirely anticipatable Mm -hmm. because you are doing something different. And then we have to try and find some things to help which is actually quite hard because a newborn baby doesn't need very much doing. It needs feeding, which hopefully the woman's doing, needs nappy changing, not terribly exciting, sleeps a lot of the time, uh, needs a bit of tidying up. But the one thing that every newborn needs is a bath. And one of the things I bang on all the time about is that uh, I see far too many couples where the woman's doing the bath time as well. It's that one thing which a dad can do, which is a really close, intimate thing to do, uh, which either parent can do. um, So the dad can do that, when he can do it on his own. And it's a great way of getting to know your baby. Mm -hmm. And the hesitant dads, I really push them to be solely in control of bath time.
2: Are they hesitant because they're unreconstructed male chauvinists, some of them, who just don't believe it's...
3: their job I, I actually think that's too harsh. No, I think it's because of a whole series of those historical elements which lead dads not to feel that they should naturally be involved in this process. Uh, and when you don't have a role model showing you how to do it, when history is not on your side, yeah. when sociology and psychology all say this is a
2: woman's job, it's natural that blokes struggle a bit. So you're quite forgiving of the, the father who sits back, doesn't even clear the dishes from the table, um, does, not only doesn't do the bathing... Doesn't doesn't do the nappies, doesn't do anything much and regards his job as bringing the money and going to work There there are plenty of couples who may choose to do it that way,
3: I'm not going to knock that if that's what they choose My argument would be that if a bloke gets the opportunity to know his little baby, I defy any bloke not to be enchanted i give you a great example my brother, who's a sort of rather right-wing engineering kind of bloke over the other side of the country. Uh, but he and I became fathers at the same time, and he wasn't going to be outdone by his little brother. And so he started really being involved with his babies in a way that was not his natural thing at all, and he found it absolutely lovely. Mm. So babies will engage you if given the chance. What we need to do is get blokes in there to be given that chance. Mm. And there is something about skin-to-skin contact
1: in a bath, I think, which is very different to nappy changing or feeding. There's something about the just touching a
0: baby and watching it coo and nestle into your hand and, and go to sleep on your shoulder mm. and the baby born beyond thing the baby carrying devices on your chest you know that i think that's been brilliant so many men you see walking around the markets and in the streets with their little babies snuggled up
1: so bathing um a very practical um i was going to say easy but sometimes it's not that easy thing to do and there are way diff- there's lots of different ways of bathing there's a little sort of plastic bath there's you know bath baths having a bath with the
3: baby, being very careful to make sure that, you know, it doesn't, you know, put its head underwater and that sort of stuff. No, it doesn't matter if it puts it, that's the whole point. Really? Yeah, that's, oh that's part of my point, is that don't have her there hovering around you, making sure that he doesn't eat the soap or they don't slip under the water for a little while. They're tough babies survive. My goodness. But <laughs> one, of my, one of my tips is do the bath time in the morning. Everybody does it at the end of the day when everyone's tired. Oh, yeah. He's come back from work, the baby's fractious and irritable. What we used to do is um, my wife would wake up and give whichever one it was a feed at you know, 6 o'clock or something. Then I would get up, take the creature away, <laughs> My wife would go back to sleep and you know, for finally there was no baby there. We'd go into a bath, I'd put on some music and you know, we'd muck around. And it's, it, if I went to change the CD and he slipped under the water for a little bit, you know, pull him out, he had a bit of a cough and a choke, yeah, he was fine. She didn't know. <gasps> yeah, but so he's, a, a,
0: he's a GP and could resuscitate <laughs>
3: it.
2: <laughs> Doesn't bathing help them go to sleep though? they more relaxed at it, the end of the day if you so the, bath?
3: It, they, can, oh, they can be, but but my point is the the reason we're doing this like this is for the dad and baby bonding and in the morning you get that alone time so i used to bath whichever baby it was have it kicking around on a sheepskin while i had breakfast get the baby dressed the baby was now hungry it was dressed it was clean but my wife would give the baby a feed baby would go back to sleep wife could get up everybody happy brilliant
1: and i like what you're saying in your book too that um it's kind of everybody wins because you take the baby away from your wife or your partner let her sleep and then you return to her a washed beautiful smelling bundle of baby that you know that part's done already and you know so you're giving her uh, you know returning a gift yeah good start to the day for everyone okay makes me want to return to those days what else what else are the challenges Opportunities for new
3: dads. One of the things that a lot of blokes say is, oh I can't wait till he's able to kick a ball, or I can't mm-hmm. wait until you know we can go bike riding together," um, as if that's the, if that's what mm-hmm. is, is going to be the good bit about parenting. Um, and one thing I'm very hot on is telling people to be in the moment with their child, with what they're doing now, because the tiny baby who's not even smiling yet lasts for, what,
2: four, five, six weeks? And then it's different. If if you've got a view on uh, nannies and the impact of that on the relationship between uh, fathers and mothers with their children. Has I, any work been done on that? Um, the, the
3: research on the whole childcare thing, whether it's nannies, creches, kinders, that sort of thing, what we know matters to kids is strong, secure attachment figure or figures. Um, and it doesn't have to be a parent. Uh, that strong, secure attachment figure can be a nanny. Um, obviously, for many kids, and ideally we feel parents are the right strong Mm. secure attachment figures but what kids need is someone it can be a grandparent it can be a teacher it can be a a non-related adult who is a safe place that they're attached to that makes the world contained and safe Mm. i heard uh george valiant
1: being interviewed uh yesterday on radio he's a, a psychiatrist who headed up for the last 60 years i think the uh, what was it called? The Harvard graduates. Uh, basically, uh, there were 200 um, undergraduates. I think I think at Harvard, or one of the big medical school Ivy League um, schools. And these men were followed up every couple of years for, for over, I think, 60 years. Has it been now? And. Uh, George Valy, this became his life's obsession to to write and to to, to research this cohort. It's an absolutely fascinating study, and he's written several books on it. And a lot of his books are about ageing. And one of the central kind of key themes is that early attachment figure in childhood is so critical for people... Being able to form loving, intimate, joyful relationships. So, as you say, Nick, you know, mum, dad, somebody else. It's it's having that one key person that you that that gives and receives love. Absolutely fascinating stuff. And as usual, whenever we get into a topic which is just so interesting, time flies, and um, we could again spend uh, a long, long time talking about this. So, we've been speaking with Dr. Nick Carr. He actually has a book. I actually went to the launch and got an autograph uh, in it. Nick's book is called What Happens Now. Um, it's got a foreword by Michael Lunig. It's the essential book for first-time fathers. It's by Dr Nick Carr and it's available at all good bookshops.
3: Yes, it. readings and online and ACER, ASA, who are the publishers. And it's a sort of book which is
1: really practical and you can kind of, you know, read it in kind of one night if you're not too buggered from getting up at 3am and doing the feeds and everything like that.
0: It's a great gift for new parents. Ah! First-time parents. So we're at work. Um, been giving them out you know we have a soft spot for dr nick but uh, have um you I, know, scrubs, yes, yeah. yes. have you really been yes that. yes well, oh, yes yes so yes anyway it's that they, i've they've really loved it so first time parents if you're looking for a gift well, what happens see? now
1: i'm holding it up to the air in case there was a camera for <laughs> the camera to watch thanks so much nick three triple Now, uh, Epi Pen, uh yes. occasionally we whisper to each other. Mm. We go, psst, yes. what's happening? Yeah. And you, apparently, uh, have found something on the internet about what somebody who whispers with hair, yeah.
0: hair whispering. So it was Lee Sales on yeah. the 7.30 report during the week yeah. talked about this new whispering therapies.
1: Whispering therapy.
0: Yes, and it's called oh. the, uh, the ASMR therapy. Theory, which is an autonomous sensory meridian response.
1: Oh, I love the acronym!
0: And it's 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 a feeling that you get when you listen to these um, video clips mm-hmm. that no one can explain. Ooh. I'll do a brush. This is one of the examples that Maria does. Mm-hmm. So she rubs her hand across a hairbrush and speaks very softly, and she can. Speak take 20 minutes to fold towels and it's very relaxing
1: so hang on, Maria is who?
0: Maria is a beauty therapist who's gone nuts with my this <laughs> therapy yeah. so it's the latest thing really? but it's not founded on any um, and sort of works, psychological cause when
1: you just did that, it's, yes? it, I felt really good can you do that again? Yeah, seriously? Sure. here we fun. go oh, yeah that feels good I closed my eyes and I
2: was instantly relaxed. And don't you buy some, buy some kryptonite in a giger counter? <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it's just gone bonkers. So they've got millions and millions that are mesmerised by these film clips. On the on, on that, so on you watch the it on the YouTube. <laughs> oh, it's a YouTube clip. Yeah. And um, they're, they're on the seven thirty report, they had mums t- getting their kids to watch her folding sheets and listening to the sound on the hairbrush before they went to school. And it but, relaxes it. But I think it's sort of like a mindfulness exercise yeah. that we don't have enough of that sort of calming down and breathing
1: yeah.
0: and hence i'm just going to go into breathing
1: that now. is beautiful hey uh, just what was the name of the youtube clip it was called um it's just whispering called whispering therapies whispering therapies i'm gonna go check it out
0: yeah are you, so as a psychiatrist do you would do you into this mindfulness gentle relaxation therapy
1: well, personally, yeah. It <laughs> made me feel really good just then. It reminded me of rain falling on a on a tin yes, roof. Yes. That's what it feels like. All those
0: sorts it? of sensory yeah. relaxation things.
1: I'm just relaxed.
0: But it's an interesting area for me because I like to think about breathing carefully and slowly because being an asthmatic and i have been one for over 50 years so there's been some amazing development in the world of asthma Uh and people that suffer from it Mm. so i was as a you know sort of a researcher and person that likes to present very well to the show I've, I've looked up asthma and i found some historical information. Yeah. So back in the Egyptian times, there's some hieroglyphics with over 700 remedies for people with funny breathing patterns. And they used to do a mixture of herbs on bricks and inhale the fumes. And then the good old Greeks came in and they used a ver- uh, d- devised the word asthma from a verb, asian. So that's the very earliest um, mention of. And what does asthma mean? Wheeze thank you. or asthma means to exhale, exhale with open mouth, or to pant. Really? Yeah. So in the beginning, and so the history of uh, asthma in the 20th century, asthma was thought of a psychosomatic disease. So people were sort of in the 30s and 50s, 1930s and 50s, people were thought to have sort of psychological illnesses. Mm. And here's a good term. There was a child's wheeze was seen as a suppressed cry for his or her mother was also maybe noted as possibly mm. depressive episodes mm. when people were breathing, mm. strangely. Mm. Happy, did the uh, Greeks or Romans
2: have a cure for asthma?
0: What I think there's there? lots of sorts of cures for breathing things in to try and get people to stop breathing so quickly. And a steam bath, things like that? Well, that's that's the foray into my experience. So
1: There was no hieroglyphic for Ventolin, uh, Judicata.
0: No, <laughs> no but it,
2: may, it would have to be some other way of dilating the Airways. Airways,
0: Airways. yeah. Yeah. So it was in the 1960s that asthma was recognised as an inflammatory disease. And that's when the anti-inflammatory medications were devised. And really, asthma is a hypersensitivity to inhaled allergens. Mm -hmm. So um my story was I sort of have always been short of breath. Mm. And um when I was at school, uh, I can remember getting bad asthma attacks and there wasn't a lot to take. And we had a farm in Berwick and in the summer I would go up there and in the middle of the night I'd wake up and call mum because, oh, my dad was there, but mum was the one that would get out of bed, I think. <laughs> so I was one of six kids. and my, Yes, wow. and mum would take me into the shower. So I'd mm. sit there in this little bathroom on our my grandparents' farm and um, do puzzle books with soggy puzzle books because the steam got into all the books and I would try and breathe and relax. and I'd, It sort of helped. I don't remember it mm. being radical. Mm. And it got to the point sometimes where mum would, Jump in the car and take me away from the farm where we all the allergens and the right. hay and the, the, the that were causing the asthma that she thought. And we'd get in her FJ Holden, the two of us at five o'clock in the morning and drive down Dan- the Dandenong Road or the Princess Highway into Melbourne. And she said, all of a sudden, getting into the city, my breathing would calm and I'd settle.
3: And Epi, is this pre ventilation days? Though? It is. It so is. this was the only thing she could do was steam and removal.
0: Steam and, steam and removal.
3: Wow.
0: Yes. So and did, then, you, did she
2: have a theory as to why the city mm, was better for it? That's right. She must have known about the allergens. Yeah. I think
0: she just. I think it was a sneeze and cough, and there was a lot of north north winds that oh, would blow up. So. And I think because sometimes I'd come home on the from the from Berwick to, into the city and things would I'd calm down. Um, so and then and then there was the t- a treatment called alsoeprenaline or an allopent puffer, mm. and that was had an adrenaline base. And well, I'd puff away on that, and I don't think I ever had a heart rate under one hundred and twenty, because <sighs> it's got it's an adrenaline. So, but it was it works by dilating the bronchial yeah. et, smooth muscle, yeah. but it was it was yeah. working on the wrong pathways. Yeah. So forever, I was a speedy kid. And, um, and then, and then they, we'd go on to tablets called Theophilin. So they're again another Mm -hmm. derivative side. It was sort of taking these sort of medications. And then they moved into Intel. So that's a sodium chromoglycate, which was a little puffer thing that you clicked and a white powder would inhale, you'd inhale a white powder. So it's often in the children's hospital seeing the asthma doctors and getting, can I ask Dr. Nick, are these
1: things, uh,
3: Theophilin and Intel, are they still used? They're still around? Uh... The- Theophilin is still around. We almost never use it. I mean, I remember mm. back in the early 80s going to people's homes and injecting them with mm. Theophilin to treat their asthma attacks, which is mm. a potentially fatal thing mm. to do. Mm. But it's all we had. Mm. Um, But it's almost never used these days. There's
1: a theophylline sprinkles, which you could sprinkle on food for kids if they didn't want to eat it at one stage. There were all these different ways. Uh, You know, I think when it's hard to treat an illness, uh, there are lots of different treatments. Yes, And then eventually now you're going to come to us having a, a fairly sophisticated repertoire of, of medications. Mm. But when you've got nothing or very few things, mm. you try and do as much as you can. There mm. still
2: deaths from asthma. Okay.
0: Well, it was interesting because they attributed a lot of the deaths um, when people were on the heart races, so the um, adrenaline derivatives, because they were dying from these reactions to having very high heart rates and what have you. And then the, what the statistics now, which Nick will probably back me up on, is that people with asthma, undiagnosed asthma, or people that aren't taking their medication, who aren't severe but they just get it now and again, don't treat themselves or let it go on and on and on? And they're the ones that we really need the education. So the Children's Hospital have a big program to educate mild asthmatics, under-medical, um, under-treated. Because they're the ones that will ignore their symptoms and leave them go a bit longer and end up in status asthmaticus, which is where you just can't stop, you know, you just can't stop wheezing and coughing. And and I think what happened for me was it was always diagnosed with a wheeze, but my children have my daughter has had some asthma and hers was purely diagnosed on a cough. Mm. So changing in recognizing the symptoms of the airway constrictions. But Nick, what, you're going to nod and say you're looking at something about...
3: Well, it, 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 the wheel of asthma's diagno- diagnostic fortune has turned at least one full circle since I've been a, a doctor and um, we've used to go back 20 years ago, almost any kid coughed more than twice in a row was diagnosed with asthma. <laughs> and nowadays we tend to have wheeze as the fundamental diagnostic criterion for asthma and if they're not wheezing we're pretty cautious. Mm. It doesn't mean that the diagnosis in your daughter's case isn't accurate, but we've got to be cautious. Coughing alone, we get very careful now about labelling asthma. Mm.
2: Is it a life sentence, asthma?
3: That's one of the reasons we've got to be cautious because when you start giving a label like asthma, people think of it as lifelong. It may not necessarily be. People can grow out of asthma, but they can also grow into it. They can develop it having never had it before.
0: So that was the theory when I started menstruating that I don't know where that's based, um, that I possibly could stop. So I have to absolutely thank the world and all the people that did this research and, and recognised that it was an anti-inflammatory disease. And in 1976, I started on a, a different sort of puffer called Budesonide, which was the anti-inflammatory one. And my life just changed so much really? from being anxious, carrying a puffer all the time to going out. And if I forgot it, it didn't, wasn't a big deal, my asthma. was so well controlled and i just i my i was so less anxious and so less worried about getting asthma and it just revolutionized it was just fantastic i was a new person and also the other brilliant thing was i was a mouth breather so i had some dental issues and i went from breathing through my mouth a lot at night to taking these inhaled steroid low dose steroids to breathing normally and i had less colds i have less hay fever i'm just a new woman mm-hmm. and also it's very safe in pregnancy i've had all my life i've had two children then they haven't had problems mm-hmm. and i it's very safe brilliant sort of way to treat asthma now
1: did your asthma change much during pregnancy because is it, nick is it supposed to change during pregnancy or am i thinking of a
3: different
0: no, no, like
3: like all of these sort of inflammatory and autoimmune diseases pregnancy can change it but mm. what what did it do mm. for you epi
2: um
0: uh stayed the same
2: oh. yeah. what about okay. anaphylaxis with the reaction to grass seeds and peanut is that a similar immune response or not related at all Because you're talking about, you know, things in the air, pollen and so on. Well, grass seeds have a similar effect on people as well.
0: I think it's a different pathway. So we have a hypersensitivity Mm. to some well-identified things. For each person it can be. And um, for um, peanuts and those sorts of things, it's a different kind of immunological response. Maybe Nick wants to...
3: Yeah, without getting into the details of exactly which cells are reacting, the, the whole concern about the rise in anaphylactic response to things like peanut and peanut allergy, probably a different issue, it's a different pathway. It's a real concern, it's a real increase, but we don't fully understand why.
1: Hmm. You know how before we were talking about growing into asthma... Not that I grew into asthma, but uh, I grew into hay fever. I hadn't had hay fever, and I was about must have been late thirties. And we went to a farm with the kids, and uh, lady said uh, the farmer said, um, "Can I take on a tractor ride? Anybody got hay fever?" No one said yes, and then we were sort of on the back of this tractor, and she started throwing out hay, and a whole lot of hay went out, and then sort of blew back in my face within about. 10 seconds, I couldn't breathe, (laughs) streaming, you know, tears down my face.
2: You'd never had it before. Hadn't had
1: it before. And for the next two days, I was just kind of like laid low in bed, or laid low, not in bed, but just laid low around the place. And sort of scrounging for antihistamines that I could find, but I hadn't had it before. Did you see a lawyer? Yeah, I <laughs> <laughs> damn, I missed my opportunity. Yeah, I should have given you a call.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, and just uh, to top that all that up that I was saying before is that you can buy the Ventolin. So they're the blue little puffers, the salbutamol. They work straight away, mm. and you can take them in big doses. And I think what they've done now is changed the way they manage acute asthma for children. In the old days, you'd have to get the pump out and inhale the little fine mist particles but now they put the ventolin on a spacer and give that to kids that are struggling with their breath at, in casualty.
1: My boy knows how to use that little spacer thing and also it's you know, no, no longer have to get a script for um, you can
0: buy ventolin little, uh, over the counter.
1: OTC. If they say so so. Have you still got hay fever Mel? No? Well, Why you
2: going to want to? No I mean was it only because of that hay? If you keep away from hay you are you all right for Haven't hay? Haven't gone fever. near hay since then. But But you still get hay fever. Well No. No. So it was specific to that type of... (laughs) Are you going to bill me for this? (laughs) Bill the bill. (laughs) No, I think she consented to... um, She got you to consent to the treatment. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. As a
3: nod to our psychiatric host, we skipped over the view of asthma being a purely psychiatric and psychosomatic disease. Um, But it is important to remember that there's always a psychological element to any physical disease. And while asthma is not primarily psychosomatic, it is an inflammatory disease disease of the airways. There are plenty of psychological techniques which can be helpful. Mm. There are breathing techniques which Mm. people use. Uh, They shouldn't replace the use of puffers Um, but there is an intimate connection between our psyche and our soma when it comes to diseases like Regular
2: yoga? Would yoga improve Uh, asthma?
3: I'm not going to say that any one thing will. What I would say is that attending to the psychological aspect is terribly important because particularly kids, they get frightened by this. Mm. It can get very circular just listening to your hairbrush, and when you start whispering, and the whole sense of tempo in the room goes down, you can almost feel the airways relaxing mm. when that happens. Mm. Mm. Now, um, Lex. Oh, sorry,
2: no, I just no. nodded off. <laughs> sorry.
0: What was it? Uh, no uh, I'll speak where am I? I? Yeah, I will, I will not stop. I'll stop oh, okay. whispering.
1: No, no more questions, Lex, because you'll be eating into your segment. Thank you so much, Penny. Thank you, Pen. Pleasure. How interesting. The history of these things is... Isn't the personal kind of flavour to oh, it? the soggy and books. The soggy books. <laughs> Thank you so much for being self-revealing. Next up, we're going to be speaking with... Lex Judicata.
2: Three, triple... R. Oh. What I thought I would... Um, would uh, 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 elaborate on this morning is a new law that's come into... Victoria, a Victorian law has been passed. Or it's about to pass? uh, passed and commenced on oh. the twenty seventh of October. So it's only two weeks old. This new law, yeah. fresh, fresh, the fresh new law, and yes. it and it require and it's a response to um, the betrayal of trust inquiry that was held by the Victorian Parliament. That was an inquiry into the handling of child abuse by religious and other non-government organisations. Um, not the one that's been currently ongoing at the federal level but a victorian parliamentary inquiry quite complementary to what's going on at the uh, federal level but it's quite separate and the response to the betrayal of trust inquiry has been these laws and uh, there have been two laws passed one on grooming which commenced in april uh this year which i i can talk about if we have time mm-hmm. but the offence of grooming, that is criminal offence. But this is um, a new law, two weeks old, which is failure to disclose child sexual abuse. So that you might think, oh, well, that'll just apply to people who work with children or health workers. But, in fact, it applies to every adult in Victoria. So every adult in Victoria now has a mandatory obligation to report to police any um any belief they have reasonable belief they have that a sexual offence has been committed by an adult against a child uh and they must do that unless they have a reasonable excuse and if they don't do it it's a criminal offence and it's punishable by three years in prison so that's a that's a that's a law that applies not just to People dealing with children, anyone at all.
0: Can so I... how would you know that you hadn't reported someone? How would you...
2: Well, if it subsequently appears, comes out, for example, that a child's been abused for a long time and and the mother of that child knew that the father of the child, was, for example, was the culprit and did nothing about it, um, unless the, the, the mother or the woman has a reasonable excuse, she will be guilty of a criminal offence, three years in prison. So uh, that would be, that would apply to the neighbour, the next-door neighbour, the grandparent, uh, anyone in the street, uh, a, school a school teacher, uh, a cleric at the church, a creche operator, anyone who uh, is aware um, of this going on. So the simple rule is if you have a reasonable belief that a sexual offence has been committed by an adult against a child in Victoria, you have to notify Victoria Police, dial triple zero. And if you don't, you risk three years in jail. Do you think a
1: law like this would be heavily promoted and sort of talked about to to ensure... Have you
2: heard anything about it? No. No. It's part of the rush. In, In the last few months of this parliament, there have been an incredible amount of legislation put up, including a new guardianship act, which didn't go through because they ran out of time, including a big change to the Wills Act, which said children can't claim they've been hardly done by if they get left out of the will, didn't get through. Masses of controversial uh, potential legislation was put up, bizarre really, probably to make up for the two years of the value years when nothing much happened. but the last two years you know' there's this mad rush to appear to be doing things now this law has actually as you say slipped through because i don't think many people understand the significance of it well i not i mean
1: whether it gets through or not, that's that's a different question but you think if the whole idea of this law would be to prevent or to really you know circum to, to stop child sexual abuse yeah but you've got to promote it for it to happen you've got to tell people about the law
2: You've got to tell people about the law. and the responsibility, well, that I've seen, the only response I've seen is from the Department of Human Services because in the nature of my work next to the park, um, <laughs> we have received some correspondence from Jill Callister, who's the secretary, telling us about the new law and about what we should do at a, at a major public hospital to ins- ensure that the staff there, not just those who work with children, know that they are at risk if they don't report. But they're medical. So, I mean, you're talking about medical nursing. You know, cleaners, future. right? Anyone, anyone who works in the cafeteria, anyone who becomes aware, for example, if a child goes up to a, an orderly at a hospital and says, "You know, I know somebody is being abused," which often can be them, hmm. that orderly has a, 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 an obligation now to, to if they have reasonable belief that 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 is likely to be the case um, to notify and if there is no notification they run that risk now there are exceptions and I'll just quickly because there isn't much time running through the exceptions one major exception is that if a person is in fear of their own safety they are not obliged to report. Mm -hmm. Now, that will often happen in a a difficult domestic relationship where one partner believes they face physical assault Mm -hmm. or serious um, risk of loss of life or injury by reporting. So that's um, one example. It doesn't apply to anyone under 18, so um, minors are not obliged to report. But if a minor turns 18... And the abuse is still going on. They then have that obligation once they become adults. So there are some, uh, there are a number of exceptions. There's a fact sheet on the Department of Human Services website, which is only three pages long, but has some uh, very useful questions um, about, you know, how can you be saying you're trying to stem out sexual, child sexual abuse when you've got all these exemptions and it answers those questions. Mm. But it is a response to the Royal Commission. Um, and I think it's a very Mm. important, a very important response. So, um, are there other
1: jurisdictions in the world which have got a similar kind of? Uh,
2: not that I'm aware of, uh, on the entire population. There's a, and I'll just talk, if I can, quickly about the grooming laws. Mm. They came in in, um, can you just
0: define what, yeah, grooming grooming is is doing any
2: action that is, uh, with a, with a child by an adult, where the purpose of that action is to engage in in unlawful sexual conduct with that child. So it doesn't have to involve unlawful sexual conduct, just so long as what the person's doing is aimed at that. Giving gifts, um, inveigling yourself with the parents of the child, Um, what's commonly described as grooming. Now, that's 10 years in jail. Conviction for grooming, much more serious, of course, uh, than failure to do something, but... um, clearly uh an attempt to to make grooming much more difficult to get away with in victoria uh if it's detected now it's you know when i look at the legislation it's hard to see how someone accused of grooming wouldn't say well i was just i was friends with the family and i and i gave the child gifts because i'm very close to the family but i think the facts will speak for themselves in terms of what um whether or not it actually is grooming and the third law which I won't spend long on, is likely to come in on July next year, uh, and that's called Failure to Protect. And that's an offence um, by people with, within organisations, such as churches or schools, um, or, uh, who know of a risk of child sexual abuse by somebody in the organisation and have the authority to reduce or remove the risk but negligently fail to do so. So if you're the school principal or you're the local vicar, and you know that someone in your organisation is likely, uh, well, there's a serious risk of child abuse, and you do nothing about it, which, of course, is the accusation Mm -hmm. coming out of the Betrayal of Trust inquiry, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly by churches and groups, uh, charitable groups, uh, then you, as the person in charge... Not the organisation. You personally will be can be charged with failure to protect. Mm-hmm. That comes in on the first of July next year as a new as another new law as a response to the inquiry. Would that be the more law that's more directly related to well, the inquiry? Arguably, you could charge the Archbishop of Melbourne if the if if the Archbishop of Melbourne knew that a particular cleric was engaged in child abuse and did nothing, that's, sure. this is what it's responding to, these sorts of claims, then the Archbishop could be personally liable for failure to protect. Now, that's sure. in 1 July next year, not now. So,
1: so, so is the difference with this law, I mean, just in terms of the process, that normally you can't charge a person, you charge the organisation?
2: Well, um, health workers have long had a, an obligation to mandatory report so children at, at risk. Workers, right? And if they fail to do so, they're personally liable. But not so much in... Um, in, ..in sort of going to prison. But, for example, they could be up before the medical board or the nurses' board or whatever. But this is this is serious criminal conduct now. It's regarded as criminal conduct. So now
1: health workers are obviously subject, subject to the same laws. So they could face three years in prison. Uh, well,
2: not, not if they mandatory report. But so but if, if they don't. Yeah, the idea is not to charge doctors and health workers with criminal offences provided they mandatory report. So if they report under the child uh, and family uh, reporting obligations they have... That's sufficient to satisfy the rule about reporting child sexual abuse. But you, so you, you're not required to report twice. So if you just no, do I'm what sure you're doing that. now, that's fine. But uh, if you do nothing, mm-hmm. you run the risk of running across this new criminal sanction.
0: So and there, everybody, um,
2: in the pu- the public are at risk. I mean, the public need to understand. If you see it going on and you know it's going on, you are obliged to do something.
0: So, so what education is going out about this
2: well good good question. I've not seen Could any you plead education. that you
0: didn't know if you didn't you didn't know the law if you didn't know? No, ignorance of the
2: law is no excuse. So the fact that you didn't know wow. the law was on the book's too bad. The law is the law. But if you That's think of the offense.
1: primary reason for these laws is to protect young people, you would expect there to be promotion of these you
2: laws. You would. I think it's all been caught up with the election campaign and there just hasn't been time I mean, there's so many things on the books as I just described before that never, that were still born, you know these uh, legal changes and I think this one's just gone through and hasn't got much attention at all
1: Wow, Wow. serious ending to the show. Thank you so much, uh, Lex Judicata. We're going to have to have another look at this. This is going to be a situation that evolves. Thank you, mate. Thank you so much, EpiPen, for your very quiet whispering, (laughs) your hairbrush, and your... Your kind of um, very personal story. It was was actually very um, emotional to hear some of those bits. Um, Thank you, Dr Nick, for coming in, sharing with us what it's like to uh, be a new dad. And uh, uh, as uh, we talked about, uh, you've got a book, What Happens Now? And I have the book. We're going to leave you with the
3: scientists
1: from uh, Einstein and Gogo. They are jumping at the bit, ready to bring you an hour of science. But we'll catch up with you next week for some more radiotherapy.